Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Today with me is none other than Carl Honoré, who is a two-time TED speaker, best-selling author of four books, In Praise of Slow, Under Pressure, The Slow Fix, and his latest called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. Carl is, of course, the voice of the global slow movement and is a former journalist. So he tries very hard to move away from the slow movement, but it keeps coming back to him. And I keep inviting him back to our podcast just to learn a little bit about his take on the slow movement in the current set of circumstances. Like many of us live life in the fast lane and we have been told to slow down with COVID, but some of us have sped up again. But a lot of us fail to stop to take in the small things. And as the year comes to an end and the festive events begin to ramp up, our lives are only set to get busier. And that's why I thought it was time to invite Carl back on Not only is Carl a great speaker, but we are lucky to have him as a faculty member here at a higher branch and a regular contributor. So Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sam. It's always a pleasure. We've spoken about this stuff before, but I want to just revisit the benefits of slowing down, you know, your tips on how you can slow down in all eight areas of life and the impact this fast world is having on our children's development. And because the last time we recorded a podcast on this, believe it or not, was two years ago. And the the world has changed a lot since then. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about the advent, the acceleration of digital media, the acceleration of gaming. So, you know, I'm hoping that this episode will change the way people approach everyday life to just to make sure that they're enjoying life's simplest pleasures. So first I want to ask, you know, what does living in the fast lane really mean for us? Well, I think it takes a heavy toll on pretty much every aspect of our lives. If you get stuck in fast forward and you only have one speed and that speed is turbo, then you end up racing through your life instead of actually living it. So I mean, where do you want to start? It's a pretty long laundry list of prices that we pay. Well, I mean, I think it takes a toll on our body, obviously. I mean, I think, you know, the, the human body is not built to, to be stuck in roadrunner mode, right? I mean, you know, we need moments to stop, to refresh, to recharge, to replenish, just simply to sleep enough, right? And when we don't, of course, you know, the body starts to send us bills of various forms, whether it's, you know, um, you know, gastroeconomic enteritis, gastro problems, heart trouble, stress, all those physical problems that people um, suffer from often because they're living too fast for their own good. I think we pay a price. Sorry, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I was going to say that the body just can't keep up uh, with that speed. You told me once the body pays the price for the mind's inability to slow down. Yeah, I, I think the body is very often our canary in a coal mine because we can be paying a price from the neck up that we can be disconnected from who we are as a person. We can lose all sense of our purpose in the world. We can 
become disconnected from the people we love. We can lose the art of listening and connecting with other human beings when we get too fast. But it can take a while to recognize that. It's easy for us, I think, to bury our heads in the sand like an ostrich when we get locked into that superficial way of living that is so unfulfilling and so unhealthy for us mentally and just power through. But it's so it's often the body that gives up first, that starts sending us the invoice that says, you know what, <laughs> you're not keeping up your end of the bargain here. And this is where the price is being paid. So I always say for people that there are many warning signs that you're living too fast for your own good, but it's so often the body that tells us first, and it will whisper to you in the form of unusual pains or sudden loss of ability, you know, just any kind of thing. It, it'll depend on the person, but so often we need to listen to our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And recently I was with a group of friends who were complaining about how life is just accelerating. They're saying time is just flying. The week goes past so quickly at the blink of an eye and the year has gone past. And they said to me, you know, I wonder why that's happening. Do you think it's COVID? And, and I, I simply said, actually, maybe life is too fast for you. You're doing too much too fast. Because really aging and how long we live is a relative thing. Someone can live a slow life and only live till 60, but have a better quality of life and more meaningful life. And someone can live to 100, but it's what kind of 100? It's, you know, does it go so fast that it feels like it's only 40 years? Yeah, I, I think it's, there's that old, I can't remember who the quote is from, but it's, the, you know, it's not the years in your life, it's the life in your years, right? Yeah. So if you, you get to the end of the track and you're lying on your deathbed and you look back, you know, what matters is the rich smorgasbord of experience that you've built up over the life behind you. It doesn't matter if that life was 79 years long or 69 or 89, right? What really matters is what each moment contributed to the bigger tapestry of the life that you've woven together over those years. So when it comes to our experience of time, it, I, this has been a really interesting moment, I think, for us as, as a species in a way, because time has become very strange, unpredictable, a bit bendy, elastic. Sometimes during the pandemic, it's felt like time was moving it was like moving through molasses because you know, maybe you had nothing to do or you felt, I don't, and yet you'd look back at the end of the week and think, I can't remember anything that, that week's, that's a whole month gone, right? What, the summer is over, right? And, and there's a weird phenomenon here, which is some people call it the vacation paradox, which is that in the moment, if you don't have uh, diverting, novel, enriching experiences, the kind of experiences that forge memories, yes. at the moment, time can feel like it's moving very slowly, right? Which is, brings you towards the idea of boredom and not having enough stimulus. Right. But then those moments when you look back seem to have passed really quickly because they've left very little mark on your memory, right? Yes. However, a mo moments like, you know, that where you, like a vacation where you is packed with all kinds of memorable Kodak moments that are going to stick with you. When you look back on that later, at the time it goes very fast, because of course you're diverted and your things are happening and you're alive and you're switched on, you're attentive. But then when you look back, it seems to have spread out right in your memory because you think, wow, that week in Portugal, I can remember 25 things that happened. And suddenly that time looks longer and slower in retrospect. So it's a very strange and peculiar phenomenon time. And I think COVID has really ratcheted up that strangeness for a lot of people. Yeah, that was my next question. Has our, relationship with time and 
you know, mm. slowing down or speeding up, has that changed in any way, especially for people who are in what they call lockdown or, you know, restricted to their homes? Has anything, what's your commentary on that? Because the world has changed considerably since you and I spoke back in yeah. March. Yeah. I think it has changed for a lot of people. Now, obviously, everybody's having a different pandemic. So it's, you know, same storm, different boats, and some people are really suffering. Other people are finding, you know, all kinds of silver linings. On the silver lining end of that spectrum, I think that people who have gained control over their working schedules, you know, by working at home, for a lot of people, that has been a pretty thrilling revelation, right? And they're starting now to see, we're seven months in now to the pandemic and a lot of lockdowns studies looking at productivity and so on and people's happiness and well-being and a lot of people are finding that you know we in the pre-covid world so much of our time was controlled by others right we'd have to go into an office even if our body was crying out to us mid-morning to get up and go for a walk or do some jumping jacks or do some yoga or just stop yeah we might not do it. We might not do it because we would be infected by the hurry and impatience of other people or an eyebrow might go up in disapproval when we go get another coffee. Yeah. And so we found ourselves locked into other people's time rhythms. And, and what, what COVID has done is it's allowed us to slough off, you know, throw off those shackles like the Incredible Hulk, right? And suddenly we're at home. And if we've discovered that between 9.30 and 10.30, we are in the rock star creativity zone. So we just zone right in to our work. And then at 10.30, we actually maybe need a 45-minute break, you know, maybe to play with the kids, go for a walk, do some stretching. And then we come back and then we have another kind of work for an hour. You know, and each person's going to be different. And what COVID, I think, has done for a lot of us is it has opened up the freedom to choose how to use time and how to experience it. And I think you see in all the surveys across the developed world, people saying, you know what, when this is over, I don't want to lose that, right? I do want to go back to the office, but not on the same terms as before. I want to have some of that human contact. I want to be in shared physical space with others, but I don't want to lose this, this new temporal autonomy, this new power over my own experience of the minutes, the seconds, and the hours, because that has been a home run scenario for me. So I think there's, so there's a real big silver lining there, and I think that we may look back on this moment of pandemic as a true inflection point in history in our relationship with time a real moment of reset right for yeah. all of us collectively and individually and I, I that just fills me with all kinds of hope absolutely love that that's yeah as you're talking that's what I'm thinking because as a as an entrepreneur that employs people one of the big questions that I face is when do I tell people to go back to the office and when I hear you know the some of the people that I know well you know, I speak to them, check in with them every now and then from home because you don't hear boo from them. They don't take a sick day and their productivity has never been higher. Yeah. And <laughs> I talk to them and they say, well, I have an extra hour and a half in the day. That doesn't even include getting dressed, having a shower, putting makeup, all those sorts of things. And I'm using it to exercise so the secret, I think, to slowing down is to actually slowing down time is to have more time. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. I think this is the reset button that we needed. And my hope is that we don't go back to the old ways. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think this is just a very quick history lesson here because the context will cement this idea in people's minds. If you look throughout human history in the workplace or people's work, that people were rewarded and remunerated for the end product, 
right? So yeah. an artisan who made shoes or a carpenter who built cabinets would not be paid by how many hours he put into that yeah. object. He would be paid for the object. And then we hit the Industrial Revolution and everything changed. 180 degrees went. Suddenly people were clocking in. You were paid by how much hour you, you spent in the office, in the factory, at the coal face. And that made sense in the industrial era when people were not engaged in a knowledge economy. They were more or less ticking boxes in the bureaucracy and they were putting widgets together on an assembly line. Now in the new world of knowledge economy, collaboration, teamwork, thinking outside the proverbial box, all that, we're going back, I think. And we need to go back to what we had throughout history, which is to say, I'm not gonna measure you as my employee by how many hours you spend with your rear end nailed to a chair. What I'm gonna measure you on is what you deliver at the end of this project, right? So here's our project we've got now. Here's the final deadline. This is what I expect from you. Between now and then, you decide how to use your time, right? You know, if it works for you to get up at three in the morning and bang out a memo or pour over a report, be my guest. But you know, if you wanna take all of Wednesday morning off to go for a long walk, to do some wild swimming, to watch your kids do ballet. You do that as well. What really matters is what you deliver at the end. And so in a way, we're just resetting history. We had this weird blip through the industrial Victorian era, which has kind of dragged on, like hung around like a bad smell into the modern knowledge economy era. Yeah. And I think COVID may be the moment where we blow that stink out the window and go back to what really works for people, which is to say, let's measure you by the end product, not by counting how many minutes and seconds you spend glued to your phone or Slack. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. And that's how all business should be run. A results only work environment, not a time driven one. So I think it was, I mean, Benjamin Franklin has had epic quotes over the years, but I think he was the one that coined the phrase time is money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah which started this whole industrial um, approach to paying people based on clocking in and clocking off. So the point you make is uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, critical for anyone that's listening who employs people or who is self-employed. So if we scroll through then the eight areas of life and look at the challenges that we're having now with speed and if we take relationships i mean we've talked about health we touched on health but if the next area of life and i go through them in the era in priority is our relationships with our partners so our love life if you like you know firstly what has digital media and social media how has it impacted the speed in which we love the speed in which we manage our relationships and what are your tips for balancing that out so we have slower relationships, slower love? I think that I'm, I'm a, not a Luddite and I love the technology and I, I think it's brought some wonderful things, not only in the workplace and in the arts, but also in our relationship. I do think it has a, a big part to play. I think the trouble is displacement, right? I think the basic building blocks of keeping a relationship going is outsourced to technology. And technology is is by and large too fast, I think, for many forms of real deep communication. So Absolutely. what you have to think of when you think of how you communicate in a relationship is you've got a whole arsenal of, of tools or, or tools in your toolbox. And one of them is social media, one of them is texting. And that's a really important one to have for certain moments, but it can't be 
your only channel. And I think for a lot of us, it has occupied too much of the, the bandwidth or the communication spectrum, if you like. And that's where the trouble lies. And, and I think it's really the, the secret sauce is in finding the right balance. So making sure you have enough, let's call it slow moments, right? Where you're actually with someone in a monomedia, unmediated moment environment, yes. together, there's physical contact. I know that's difficult for, and obviously the pandemic puts a filter on that, but you know, we are human, we are physical animals, right? Touch is so, so important to us. It's important from the moment we're first born Absolutely. and our mother holds her, us to her bosom. We need physical touch. The screen is never going to give you that. So you need to have that. This is one thing where we find difficult now, I think because we've got so used to technology is we always want stimulation, right? We're afraid of silence or you know, people talk about dead air and awkward moments, right? But actually, those are really useful things to have sometimes in a relationship, simply being together and maybe in a moment not being quite sure what to say to the other person or feeling a little uneasy or restless, because that could be your way of picking up something that's not working in the relationship. But if you expect every moment to be a Hollywood rom-com moment, right, or frictionless, to use that phrase from Silicon Valley, then you're going to miss out on the, the real making of a long-term relationship, because it's friction that produces heat, produces light, it produces understanding. And we need moments of friction. So I think to flee those things and try to move to something which is all seamless and quick and easy, the, the, the social media thing is a danger. So it's about finding the right balance for you. I mean, it's, people always say, well, what's the right balance? You know, what's, is it 60, 30? I don't think anybody can tell you that. I think it's a, a lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is testing. It'll be different for different relationships at different times in the year of the week and stuff. But always just being open to the idea that you need to, where at all possible to put the slow stuff first and then slot in. So that could be the kind of guiding principle. You start with as much of the listening, the physical, the together, the unmediated social contact, and then salt in, like season it rather than the other way around, which is I fear what many of us do now. Can I just throw in as a footnote, one little observation I've made during the pandemic, which is this. It's been super interesting what's happening on dating apps, right? Because what people unable meet up in person, what you're hearing from a lot of people, and especially, I think this is quite telling from women, is that they've really enjoyed this kind of lockdown pandemic thing because it's forced dating apps, the whole experience to slow down, right? You can't just hit someone up on Tinder and then you meet them in a bar and then you've, you know, whatever's got to happen after that, you know, that you've got to build some kind of, because you can't meet, right? For various restrictions and rules, right? So what a lot of women I'm finding are saying is it's such a relief because you meet these men now online and they have to talk to you, right? They have to listen. They have to show an interest. They've got to seduce. They've got to engage in conversation, right? All those old things that seem so passe and, you know, 20th century and, 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 and involve friction are, are forced back upon us. And certainly half the population, at least, is really liking it. And I suspect a lot of men do as well, right? That it's just that, and I do hear from men as well, that it's forced us to slow down the dating ritual, courtship right Uh, instead of cutting straight to the sexual chase and i think that that's could be a good thing that we care for yeah i spoke with uh, jen mann last week and she said that the COVID lockdown has forced men to relook at the lost art of seduction and i I think exactly what you're uh, talking about but when it comes to social media and digital media so couples are either having sex or they're on their phones. So sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> so the question is this, are we playing with fire? I mean, Cal Newport uh, wrote a book about it and he dumped social media completely. He's actually off the grid because he's saying that humans are no match for the addictive substance that is dopamine that you get every time you pick up your phone to check your Instagram feed or post something or to see how many likes there are or just to see the news item. So it's that addiction that's causing us to speed up. So are we fighting a losing battle? Is there anyone on this planet that can actually achieve balance? I don't hold myself up as a paragon and you know, I think we're all in a, a constant dance with the tech, right? To find the right balance. And sometimes we're on the back foot, sometimes we're on the front foot. Yes. But, and I do think, I think playing with fire is a good metaphor it, the, the, for all the dopamine reasons you've outlined there. But I, I personally would not take such a maximalist approach as, as Cal Newport uh, to pull the plug completely. My approach is more circuit breakers. It's just having little rituals, little hacks, little ways of being with my technology that stop me getting into that addicted state. And I can feel, you know, I can feel the draw. I, I'm, I'm a human being too. I have reward systems in my head like everybody else. But I think you can cr- kind of construct or, and take step. So for instance, for years now, I've never had notifications. They're all switched off on my phone. Okay. So I never get interrupted by anything ever. I only look at my phone when I've decided this is the moment I want to see what's happening on social media or if I've had a message and then I, you know, will switch it on or have a look. But that's actually a really powerful one because it's a very powerful one. It flips the tables and it says, who's in charge here? Who's deciding when I'm going to look? And, and I found that quite hard at first, to be honest. But once I stuck with it, I came out the other end and I would never go back to having notifications on. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm flexible. You know, certain times I know I might be expecting an important calls, so I'll switch on, the, allow the phone to be on. I'm not an extremist. Yes. Yes. But, but the principle of saying who is calling the shots, who's deciding when is me, big difference. Another thing I do as well is, this is something you see a lot in public spaces, just in the world, the people... It's like in the old Wild West, you know, wherever the cowboys would go, they'd take their six shooters out and put them on the table. And it was kind of a, it was <laughs> yes. a place, place to put them, but it was also a statement, right? It, was, yes. it said something about their place in the hierarchy, their feelings about that room, other people, yes. da, da, da. So phones are the same, right? There's a lot of research that shows if a phone is visible, it's affecting us, even if it doesn't ring or illuminate or whatever. That's right. We're yep. worried about it. it. The people keep the conversation at a more superficial level. We don't bond as much with the other person. So my phone is always out of sight physically. It's either in my pocket, it's in a bag. Even if I'm at a table, I'll put it under a magazine, I, just not to see it. And you know, the science is pretty clear. That is making a palpable difference to the quality of my social moments, right? So those are just two things I think we could, one is small, one is bigger, the notifications, but I think can make a big difference to Absolutely. how we- I couldn't agree more. And if you are listening at the moment, please turn off your notifications. The damage you are doing to your attention span and the impact it's having on your chemicals inside your body and the impact it's having on your relationships, it's dire. So I I love that tip. That is a big tip. And I think the other one is a big tip as well. So at our table, if someone brings their phone, I say, I'm not eating until the the phone is away from the dining room table. And I do that in restaurants sometimes uh, with my friends. And that's a big one because when it's out of sight, like you said, you tend to connect more. You go back to being human. But you and I, we're in our, I mean, you don't look it, but we're in our 50s, right? (laughs) So we didn't have technology for the first, you know, 30 odd years Mm -hmm. in our life, right? 
that's a long time. Even then, I can tell you now that if I misuse the technology, I become addicted, absolutely addicted, where every time I have a quiet moment, that segue into the next thing that I need to do, I then instantly pick up the phone and then I check myself. Now, you know, I'm in my 50s and that's having that impact. What about our children? How is technology affecting the development of our children? And this is all related to the slow movement. This, for me, it's all tied in. This digital deluge is speeding us up. I think that's the number one thing that's speeding people up and it's speeding up our children's minds where they they have to be always in overdrive and to slow them down it's like anyone that's experienced going on the highway at 120 kilometers an hour and they come off the exit and they're being told to go to 60 kilometers an hour you inevitably get booked by the policeman that's hiding around the corner because it's hard to slow down So what about our children? Okay, notifications, that's good. So are we fighting a losing battle there? And what's going to happen to the development of our children? Are they going to grow up to have terrible relationships? Yeah, it's not a losing battle to start with. Definitely not. It's one that we can win. And I think we're pushing back, definitely. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley working with parents and families and so on, people who work in these high-tech companies. And these are people who are on the bleeding edge of all of this tech. And they're crunching the numbers and doing the data and reading the studies. And it's interesting when you see what they're doing with their own children. They're holding back the gadgets as long as possible, making sure they have a lot of time in their schedule, which is free of screens. You know, they're making sure that they're able to handle the new technology and they're not falling behind and all that, and that they're enjoying and having fun with it. But they're also drawing lines, right? And just placing on the family table from the very start, the conversation about limits and discipline and the fact that these gadgets are incredibly addictive. They're weapons of mass distraction. And we need to start creating our own rules, both individually and families together in order to roll back the juggernaut. So, and, and Silicon Valley, you know, in that sense is sort of, you know, they're probably the vanguard of this, but you find it all over the world as communities, families, and so on are trying to rewrite the rule book or the playbook for using tech. Part of your question was, what are we doing? Weirdly, we're not deep enough into this whole massive experiment with children's brains that we've been undergoing for the last, whatever, 20 years. We don't know enough yet. The honest truth is we don't know enough science-wise to say 100% sure. What is pretty clear, though, from the science, very clear, in fact, is that the danger of displacement, right? So that if tech expands and you know, occupies you know, 10 hours of a child's day, that means they don't have very much time left for exercise, for free play, for tactile experience of other people, of play, of objects and stuff. And that's a loss. That's a loss that undermines so many things, their ability to think creatively, to invent, to use time, to look into themselves and work out who they are rather than what everyone else wants them to be. It can take away from social skills. A whole panoply of things get lost when we displace. So the question then becomes, well, what do we do? I mean, you know, some of those things like simply notifications, redrawing the the map of the family home, I think is a very important thing. Reimagining physical space in the home, having at least one room wherever possible or some space which is permanently screen free, right? A place that will inevitably become a sanctuary, a place where people go when they want not to be distracted or to have conversations without interruptions. I mean, one thing I did, it made a TV show, as you well know, in Australia with Frantic Family Rescue, right? And I, for all the families, I created a gadget box, right? A big box you put by the front door and then everybody comes into the house, you know, or for, the, for these families, I had to put all their screens in the box for a whole month, right? Real cold turkey. That's hardcore. 
you know, you could try that as a family, but I wouldn't say that's the only way. I, I think that having a gadget box at the front door where people come in and have to put their gadgets in, everything goes in there. And then you have certain times of the day when the whole family can look at their screens and of course work out exactly the right timings. And maybe you have some people, if they've got homework or, you know, be flexible, but try to establish the principle. Because the problem is the principle now is that it's a free for all. Like the screens are always there. They're always on. Anyone can be using them anytime. That's the problem. I think we need to start from a different place, which is to say the starting point, the default setting in this home is off. And then at what points are we going to allow people to be on and at what conditions and, and why? And then, so start from that point and then work out your own recipe at home. I think that's a really, again, it's a 180 degree swivel to a different way of thinking about tech. And it will lead to a much healthier relationship with screens, not just for your kids, but you as well as parents, because even though we're in our fifties, you, you know, we have the same reward systems. We've got as addicted or are as addicted as, as any digital native, right? So I guess the first step really for parents is to be an example. And I, I raise this topic because parents are confused. They don't know what to do. They give up on trying to implement new uh, rules. They might hear something about how the digital uh, media and the distraction and the acceleration of the child's brain and the inability for the child's brain to actually do deep work is being destroyed. Then for a day or two, they try and implement all these rules. Then they give up. It's just too hard. The child's taken the phone. They've got run off to the bedroom mm. and uh, parents are distracted with their own jobs. I just feel I, I don't want to sound like <laughs> the situation is hopeless. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is because I think it's a serious issue in our society that is destroying families. As a lawyer as well, I uh, have colleagues who tell me that divorce has absolutely skyrocketed. Children's levels of ADD, ADHD is skyrocketing. The rate of teenage depression has skyrocketed. I spoke to a friend of mine today who said he knows of four families, you know, one degree of separation this year that are, who have lost uh, teenage girls to suicide. And did I, I said, COVID? And they said, no, it's, I think it's just social media. This, the impact that social media has on the brain. And look, I don't want to get political, but there's a lot of people now, especially in the US with this election, talking about how the tech giants have hijacked our brains and people's ability to think critically is destroyed in the process. That's something that I learned very early on from your book in Praise of Slow, that speed makes us slow and stupid, ironically. <laughs> it makes us slower thinkers and stupid thinkers. And, and that's accelerated since you wrote that book. I mean, in a way, that book was prophetic. And <laughs> at the time, it sounded like it was extreme. But now you look back on what you wrote in, that, in Praise of Slow. Was that 2006, was it? Four, even. Four, yeah. yeah. Four. That, that a lot of the stuff that you warned of is actually happening now, and you attributed a lot of it to, to media, computers, PDAs, tablets. So I stress it because... I want people to feel like they're not alone. People that are listening now that have children. And a lot of people in our community have partners, they have children, they have businesses, they have a mortgage, they have a busy lifestyle. And yes, COVID has slowed them down. A lot of them say it was a godsend. But there are a lot of children in lockdown at the moment who are at home 
and they're just totally addicted to social media, digital media. And the parents feel guilty if they try and impose rules because then it turns into an argument. The home turns into a space of conflict rather than a, a space of calm and slow. And I do think that we need some drastic measures and some of the ones that you're espousing as well. So I want to get a little bit more specific on what yeah. you think. Let's imagine you're still doing this, this TV show because you are the host of that yeah, TV, yeah, yeah. right? Well, How drastic would you get in a family of two kids where it's a constant argument? Well, I think drastic is an interesting word to use because I think we do need drastic, but we don't need it drastically. So what I mean by that, I think we need baby steps. I think you're heading for a hiding if you come in and just drop a nuclear bomb and say, you know, your children have been spending 12 hours a day online and suddenly you say, that's it. You're getting two hours. It's, it's going to be a war zone, right? That's just, that's never going to work. That's right. Yes. You've got to slow down slowly, right? So you take small steps. Maybe uh, next week you say, okay, you look at your kids and they're spending, I don't know, they're spending 10 hours. You say, let's take one of those hours out of the equation and also, it's not enough just to pull the rug out and say, okay, you're now, you've got an hour without a screen, sort it out yourself. You know, as parents, I think we need to step up, help them re-energize those almost atrophied muscles of play, of exploration, of curiosity, because they're so used to getting it all from the screen. If you give them an hour of nothing where they have to turn and use their own resources, they panic. They don't know what to do. They're going to grab the phone and run off to the room and, or hot, lock Correct. themselves in the bathroom, right? So yeah. I think for the start point, you don't push the nuclear button and try and go down from 10 hours to two. You maybe take one hour off. And during that hour, you say, okay, let's roll our sleeves up. What can we do with this hour? You know, what, can, what would you like to do? You know, what, let's get some art stuff out. Let's yeah. go for a walk. Let's kick a ball yeah. around. And you, know, you do the displacement for them. You help them you know, experience something that's not screen-based. And the, the child will have those muscles, right? If you just kind of get them going again, firing again, the, then the child will think, you know what? I really quite like that. It was good fun. And so the next, you do that for a week. And then maybe the next week, the child is okay doing that hour themselves. And maybe you then go down to two hours less of the 10, say, and just work your way up. You know, we're all so impatient in this fast world. We want to slow down fast too. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way, especially with kids. You, know, you need baby steps, right? You need to slow down slowly. So that would be one suggestion. And then I want to pull a thread. I, I love that. Just on that point, before you get into the second one, because this is profound what you've just said. So for everyone that's listening, if you remove the addiction to social media, if you remove that hour of gaming or the hour of Instagram or the hour of TikTok or hour of screen time, you have to fill that void. So you can't just take it away and expect them to sit and do nothing. And this is where I want to confront parents to say, you need to spend quality time with your children during that hour or two. And at first it might be difficult, but like Carl said, that is if you remove an hour, then do something in that hour, fill that void with something else. So I just wanted to stop to, to really state that was a very profound tip uh, that you gave Carl. So please proceed on the second one. Sure. The second one was, to, I just want to pull on that thread of something you said earlier about you're not alone, because this is another problem I think in our society of speed is that we get disconnected, not just from our, our own families, but from other families, from our yes. community, from neighborhoods and so on. And we can f find ourselves painted into a corner where we believe that there is no other way, right? It's, it's full speed ahead or your toast, right? There's no, you cannot slow down or your child will fall behind. It'll, it'll be the end of the world, right? Yes. It's not, and you're not alone. I mean, most parents behind the facade of speed 
or the you know the duck looking calm on the surface are paddling frantically under underwater and thinking I would like to slow down too. I don't want my child spending this many hours watching TikTok videos. So you know there's there's an old uh, African proverb: if you want to go fast, go alone; if you want to go far, go together. And I think that's another another important piece here, a variable in the equation is reaching out to other families with kids that are the same age and taking those baby steps together, right? So, you know, maybe for that hour of social media displacement, filling that void, maybe you do half an hour, and but you find another family with a kid the same age who lives across the street or wherever, get the two kids together, get them riding their bikes together, get them building something in the back garden or whatever it is, you know, and just, again, bring the social from outside in, but also that will help you feel less worried that you're doing the wrong thing because you realize that other parents are grappling with the same problems and are willing to take a step in the same direction. So wherever possible, and I know it's more difficult in pandemic times, but try wherever possible not to do this alone, right? To get out there and build a network, build a tribe of people who say enough is enough. It's time to reconnect with our inner tortoise, right? So I'll say. Absolutely. Love that tip as well. So this is something we've implemented where we have returned to what my parents used to do and that is visit, socialize. And so we've really reignited our social uh, face-to-face socializing where people come over and we have dinner together, we play cards together, you know, we talk together and it's inevitably the pull of, you know, the screens. If you leave the kids, why I noticed when we first started doing this, we'd look over to the kids section where they're sitting and we think geez they've gone quiet and then you look over and they're all on their screens but because all the parents on the same page we say right everyone put their phones down or put it in the uh, the front foyer and you really need to clamp down on it i want to give parents permission not to feel guilty or not to feel uncertain you're fighting for your children's brain development you're fighting for your children's uh, future success not just in their performance at work but in relationships so the question is who is raising your children is it TikTok, facebook instagram all those games or is it you so if you make the decision that it's you then don't feel guilty about taking drastic measures right but not drastically so i i love that there's power in numbers so find like-minded people who believe in the same things and get out and socialize actually leave your home and visit other people and that's something that we've been doing consistently i love that image you painted there of the the card game that's so potent right is is parents together saying putting up a united front and saying no up until here and then no further get those phones down and then i'm sure you know i'm guessing those kids put the phones down and went off and something was noisy again right it was you could hear children playing whatever works I'll tell you why it works. It works because my kids won't listen to me, but when they hear other parents say the same thing, they take it seriously because I, I don't know what it is. You can tell me about the psychology of that, but if they hear another parent and see another parent reprimanding their own children, tools down straight away, <laughs> phones down. There's, there's another thing. Is, I think children are very savvy, right? They're very good at divide and conquer, right? So, you know, we see that within our own families. If, if dad says no, they'll go off to mom, right? So if you and your wife say no to the phone, but someone else's dad saying it's okay, you know, it's, it's, they're going to find those little pressure points and they're going to exploit them. But if they face a united front, you know, up goes the white flag, the phone goes off and suddenly it's a different, it's a different ball game. 
So yeah. I love the, I like, I think also this is something else that I'm noticing here with the pandemic is that people are much more local, right? You're, the, the community, the neighborhood is becoming much more of a focus. And so my children are older now, but I know from friends and so on in the street that there's so much more interaction going on among the households. There's been a WhatsApp group was created for our street. And a lot of kids now who go to different schools had no connection with each other now are playing together, right? And they close off my big shopping street on Saturdays. I see those kids together who didn't know each other before the pandemic down there skateboarding, hanging out together, you know, no phones in sight, just playing, right? I love so, that. Yeah, that's what we can get back to, right? That very simple human stuff that's there for us. It's what we want, right? If we can just pu push the, the sort of, as you say, the kind of Zuckerberg industrial complex out of the way, yes. then um, people will light up, you know, of all ages again. Absolutely. So getting back to the, the core message of the slow movement, slow work, slow cooking, slow eating, slow parenting, slow lovemaking, <laughs> slow friendships, all that. Is slow synonymous with being present? And I asked this question because my good friend and your good friend, Tom Sullivan, we recorded a podcast together only a few days ago. And just to revisit the meditation and mindfulness, and we approached it from a different uh, perspective. And I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but it just struck me from what you're saying, what he's saying is being present, the antidote to speed. Is it really the number one thing that we have to slow down? I, I think it is in a way. I mean, I think of slow with a capital S as a mentality, right? It's a state of mind. It's, right. it's less about hundred kilometers an hour versus 10 kilometers an hour, because sometimes hundred kilometers an hour is the right speed. You know, <laughs> sometimes it's not. It's really about how you're experiencing the moment. And if you're present, fully engaged, if you're, all your senses are firing, if you're living that moment to the full, then that's slow in action, right? And in a way, that the other, another way to say that is presence. And it's interesting looking back when, you know, when I started writing about this idea of a slow movement and the whole thing kind of took off. And then a few years later, suddenly the mindfulness boom hit, right? And I thought it was quite telling that yeah. in a lot of ways, I feel like mindfulness is sort of piggybacking on slow. This is another way of saying the same thing in a sense, right? You're, yes. you're trying to create this inner stillness, this place of calm, serenity inside yourself. And from there, you can then engage with the world, right? On whatever terms that are required of you in the moment, right? But if you have that internal core, slow on the inside, it's, it's going to be fine. You know, you're going to smash it. <laughs> When you, you see the world in a different lens, I experience moments of that and it typically comes after meditation or a nap where I feel like time is, is standing still and I come out of the nap or meditation, I look out and I start noticing everything. I'm no longer numb to the world and I think that's what speed does. It makes us numb. And I want to remind people of, just on that point, people of what I call the ladybug moment from your talk at Upgrade Your Life 2020, which was only a few months ago, but it seems like it <laughs> forever. For those of you who didn't attend Upgrade Your Life, go onto our YouTube channel, uh, Higher Branch YouTube channel, and, and I'm sure there's a few videos in there about Carl's ladybug moment that describes beautifully what we're talking about at this uh, moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's what we all aspire to, right? It's ladybug moments. I call it that because it's the idea that, you know, you're walking down the street with your seven-year-old and she spots a ladybug on a rose bush. And, and any parent knows that she can stop there and spend 20 minutes, right? She'll give the ladybug a name, she'll watch it 
scuttling up and down rose petals. She'll weave a whole narrative of Icelandic saga proportions around the ladybug. And if it goes flitting off to another bush, she'll go after it, doing cartwheels, getting exercise. And, and we know actually from science that in that moment of free play, of total focus, of you know, following the North Star of her own, that our daughter's brain is on fire, right? She's building her brain in ways that a thousand hours of Kumon tutoring and a million DVDs, educational ones, will never come close to touching. The trouble is, of course, in our fast forward culture, we see that moment and think that kind of looks like a waste of time, right? You, know, you can't put a ladybug moment on a university application or a job resume and <laughs> grab her by the wrist and we yank her away and say, come on, hurry up, we're late for ballet. Yes. But actually, the ladybug moment is the cornerstone of all child development because it's in those moments of unstructured time, of restlessness, of discovery, of boredom even, right? The children learn how to think, how to enjoy the moment, how to be present, how to explore, how to work out who they are and all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, the more ladybug moments, the better. That's what we... Absolutely. I love that. Are. Yeah. <laughs> Give them to our children, but also for ourselves, right? It's not just a, a monopoly for children, ladybug moments. It's like what you described there in a sense after meditation and your nap when your senses are buzzing and suddenly the world goes from black and white to technicolor you're present you're noticing little details and different texture and shades of meaning and color and all that stuff and that's what living is right it's when all those senses are firing and you're able just to channel all of them right and you're alive and on fire in the moment you're having a ladybug moment right that's okay. kind of my my, my motto <laughs> Well, when, one of the reasons why I picked up your book in Praise of Slow many years ago and bought it and I reached out to you after that was I was having some problems with my digestion and I took lots of supplements and all that sort of stuff. None, none of it worked. And after reading your book, I realized that I needed to be more mindful to slow down and see, taste, touch my food and connect with my food. And you can only do that when you slow down. So from memory, I started actually going for a walk after work before I'd eat. So for people listening right now, if, you know, if you used to get home from work and you're ravenously hungry and you just want to eat your food, I used to go for a walk and then I'd meditate and then I'd slow right down and then I wouldn't watch TV. And all these tips are in your book. And I started then savoring the flavors and my digestion problems went away, absolutely went away. And it was hard. It took me a long time to sow those habits because there's this need to turn on the TV or to, to talk too much and be distracted from the primal connection with that food. That was a game changer for me. So there's a really big payoff really to, to slow down. Can I just jump in really swiftly here, just for a moment? Absolutely. I like what I pull out something you said there, which I think is so important, is that you talked about the idea of coming back from work and then not just jumping straight into eating, but taking a moment to do something, to go for a walk or something. I think that's what we lose in this fast forward culture is those in-between moments, those liminal spaces, everything gets compressed and we're moving, we're vaulting from one activity to the next. And it's so important to build in those little moments of pause, right? Of just reset, of reflection, of, of processing what you've gone through, taking a breath, kind of rebooting the body and the mind to move on to the next thing. Whether it's moving on to eating or making love or spending some time with your children, you're just going to get so much more out of those moments, be much more present than if you charge into them breathlessly from the last thing without even stopping. So that those little stop, and you don't have to stop for four hours, right? Sometimes a little circuit breaker moment of, you know, a minute can be some, can make a difference, right? A couple of minutes. It's not a waste of time. It's an investment in the next block of time, the next activity you do. So you got to kind of, again, think again. It's not wasted time doing nothing for two minutes. It's actually an investment for making more of the time to come. 
Absolutely. It's funny you should mention that because Tom Sullivan and myself talked about the two-minute meditation. And he said, even if it's just two minutes, the science shows that you can recalibrate all your body chemistry in those two minutes and uh, slow right down. So for me, the telltale signs that you know I have to slow down was things like indigestion. So what are the other telltale signs uh, that people should look out for? Not just for health, but it could be their relationships, their ability to work, even their ability to read a book. So what are the telltale signs that you know that someone has an addiction to speed and they need to slow down? One is the loss of memory, right? I mean, nothing, when you're living too fast, everything's moving too quickly, nothing sticks. And, and Milan Kundera, the Czech novelist, once said there's an intimate bond between slowness and memory. And I think that's something that we often recognize that, you know, you just race through a week, you get to the end, you know, you can't remember what you ate last night, you finished a Netflix series three days ago, and you can't quite remember how it ended, you know, things just do not stick. Wow. So if you're finding that your memory is porous, it's not early onset dementia, trust me, it's because you're living too fast, right? So memory is a good yardstick, a good another canary in the coal mine. I think the feeling of struggling to concentrate in the moment, right, whether it's reading a report at work, or if you just find yourself your, your attention drifting away or flitting off to something else. Again, that's a sign that you've got stuck in this roadrunner mode of trying to do too many things too fast and often multitasking your way through. So those are a couple more. And, and then another one is, you know, this is a very broad one, but I think is happiness, right? I think, I think ultimately, if you're racing through your life instead of living it, that's a pretty grim, bleak place to be. And, and, and it's one of the great benefits of slowing down is just feeling happier, right? Because you may do fewer things, but the things you do, you really enjoy. You do them well and you have time to look back on them and you remember them and you can talk to people about them. And you know, nobody lies in their deathbed and looks back and thinks, I wish I spent more time watching TikTok videos, right? So it's about kind of choosing the right things that you give your time to, but also giving your full self to those things. And once you get that, happiness soars. So another warning sign is unhappiness, right? And you touched on it earlier, suicides, all these kind of mental health problems we're seeing. I think a lot of that is connected to the fact that people are living way too fast. Absolutely. So what are the, the best ways that we can slow down, like real practical things that we can do starting now to slow down? Well, I think we are chronically trying to do too much. <laughs> so, you know, whip out that to-do list every day, every week, and pick one thing you can drop. There is always going to be one thing you can drop because nobody is doing indispensable, life-defining things. We're just not. We're filling our schedules with fluff and distraction. Look at the, how you're using your time and just try to dial down the, the yes. activity. Focus on what's really important. Give your full self to that and let everything else go. It's scary because we all have FOMO and stuff. But again, like I say, so much of what you're doing today, it's not even going to register two weeks from now because it's not important, right? So think hard about what's important. Focus on that. Let everything else go. I think another tip I would throw in is to build some kind of slow ritual into your day. You talked about Tom and meditation. I think that's a good one. But some kind of slow activity that just vaccinates you against the virus of hurry. So, you know, reading poetry. I like to sketch. Sketching, I find, is a really good way to force me to slow down and look at things. You could do knitting or some kind of craft or just something that is there in your day. You don't have to give it four hours a day. You know, even if you just build in 10 minutes of it somewhere or 15 minutes when you come home in the evening or what, or midway through the day at work or something that it's just there. Something you, that gives you joy as well and helps you slow down. I love that tip because it reminded me of uh, a podcast I recorded with Dr. Stan Rodsky, who Oprah Winfrey had on her program because he pioneered the research into how 
Colouring in can slow the brain and there were benefits for neuroplasticity. So I think his site's called Colortation, as in <laughs> colortation.com.au. So I bought a lot of his colouring in books and he has these meditations or these sounds that you listen to whilst you're colouring in. By the end of it, you're almost in delta wave pattern. <laughs> it's just yeah. remarkable. <laughs> So that tip that you just gave reminded me about, I mean, you mentioned knitting, but coloring in, doing a jigsaw. I mean, oh, it's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, we've always got, almost always got a massive thousand piece jigsaw puzzle on the kitchen table <laughs> on the go. I, jigsaw for me is like yoga, right? It's just so soothing. It, yeah. You don't see, you know, hurry a jigsaw. It doesn't make sense. Just don't, right? You, it takes focus. <laughs> it's like coloring in for grownups. <laughs> There's some beautiful tips and, you know, these are the big tips. These are the, it's like compound exercises that are going to give you the most bang for your buck because I guess there are secondary things and there are primary things. I, I think what you just mentioned are the primary things. The secondary things is the addiction to technology, but you need to get rid of those so you can focus on the primary things because I think one of the things that drives us to do more and more is FOMO and we get FOMO from social media and seeing you know other people are you know climbing this boxing that cycling down there and uh, yeah. then going to the to a party looking amazing on the same night and then starting businesses and it's you know it's all <laughs> we take all of this stuff in and say makes us feel like we're not doing enough in life then we jam our days we speed up and we destroy our health, we destroy our relationships. So those tips that you gave for everyone that's listening, they're simple, but I think it's really something that will save your health and save your relationships and save the future of your children. So please heed, <laughs> heed the message and take the advice. And on that note, Carl, thank you very much for downloading your incredible thought leadership from so many years of practice and experience and your research. And thank you so much for appearing on the program today. And before you go, was there anything else that you wanted to share with us? Well, first of all, thank you, Sam. It's always, it's always a great, great pleasure to chat. I'm so looking forward to being able to do it in person with you again soon. Well, what I guess I've just actually about to publish my first ever How to Slow Down workbook. Yes. Uh, so that's quite an exciting thing. It's been on the back burner for a long time, but COVID has you know, given me the time to do it. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to run boot camps off it. It's called 30 Days to Slow, and you can you know, go to my website. Where do we find it? Is it carlonore.com? Yeah, at carlonore.com, yeah. So it's all kind of fresh and new, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I – you know, we're doing many more things digitally now and, and a lot of them are, are fun and fruitful and are working. And I, this is going to be, a, I'm doing a free boot camp to start. And I think I've got a, already a hundred people or some, and I, I want to cap it. I don't want to have too many people in the first run and just sort of see how it goes. Just throw the dice. And so if, if you, if this goes out in time, you know, I'm still allowing a few people to sign up. So it'd be great if some of the people from higher branch jumped in as well. Absolutely. The best way to pursue the whole workbook for now is just to email me at uh, contact at carlonray.com. That's going to be the best route for oh, everybody. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Thank you, Carl. And thank you for your work. And I hope everything goes well for you guys there in London. So on behalf of the High Branch community, I want to thank you for the work that you continue doing. And yeah, thank you uh, so much, Carl. Always uh, thinking about you. Lots of uh, love from my end. And can't wait like to see you in person. I know. And thank you for everything you do. You're, you are with 
all you do moving mountains. So respect, my friend, and hopefully see you soon. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live consciously, my friends. Thank you for tuning in. Now, if you want to stay up to date with all things a higher branch and with the latest information from our incredible faculty of members and contributors, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to watch things, then head on over to our YouTube channel by the same name, a higher branch, and subscribe to that also. And if you want to go onto our mail list where you will receive even more special premieres and some really special offerings, head on over over to ahigherbranch.com and sign up to our mail list where you will receive a free copy of my ebook Guide to Greatness but you will also be on the mail list to be the first to receive a copy of my next book The Circle of Conscious Living which is due out later this year anyway thank you again for listening and I hope to be with you next time